Pod. I have C. Derek Barn. He is a uh, poet living in Utah. He has a collection of poetry called Apocalyptics, and uh, he teaches, he podcasts on obscure topics and thinks longingly about his prior travels in uh, Egypt, Mexico, and South Korea. I guess where, yeah. where you where you lived also. Yeah, right? I lived. Yeah, I was about to say I traveled a lot further than that, but yeah, I used to live there. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I think I. I first bumped into you guys like back on the definitely in the original in, in, incarnation of Pop the Left, and somehow. Oh wow! So yeah, uh, that's like yeah, like eight years ago. 2013, 2012, I think was the mm-hmm. when that, and so that would have been um, right when we uh, moved over to the UK, and uh, and yeah, so I, I was I didn't have any friends that I was. <laughs> a deep dive i guess on podcasting but yeah so i'm a a, whatever you could say about me i'm a heavy duty podcast listener i'm I'm not a professional podcast listener yet but maybe someday um yeah that's back when all the political podcasts were libertarian that's you know before the pinko wave happened exactly exactly there's so many there's there's not only uh billions more podcasts now there's a billion more political ones but i think i think it's interesting that yeah um there was there was nothing nothing out there and so uh i think the fact that i don't know i'm i mean i was interested in you guys then and i'm and i'm still interested in one of the few that i'm uh, still can bear to listen to uh and enjoy listening to um yeah anymore. funnily enough i actually really don't listen to political podcasts um i i don't get a lot from it um no so. it's just it's pretty they're kind of a it's a downer really I think just no matter what, no matter what side you're on. Um, and so I guess that, and that by way of another uh, part of introduction, uh, you are a full blown Marxist, right? So, yeah. and so for anyone listening who is not excited about that, I'm not, I'm probably, I'm the opposite of a Marxist. I don't know, you know, whatever, I don't, I don't really want to get into whatever I am because I don't really know what I am. But I guess my only point by that is that I think that you're uh, super, super interesting and, um, and, and always come from a, a, a good faith position, I guess, as you and Doug would say, in a sincere position. And a, I'm just very drawn to people that have a strong personality and are very well read, which maybe you, you wouldn't say, but I, I'll say you're <laughs> extremely well read. Um, and so, yeah, just interesting. I guess that's my main my main criteria. How many books for... have I read on Goodreads? Uh, so like eight thousand or something. <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah. There's well, there's the ratings, and then there's the reviews, and and uh, yeah. Well, I think you I think you're still down as being in Egypt, so you're absolutely dominating Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, but 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 you're interesting, and it's funny because my my brother knows you as um, whenever I tell him something, he says, "No, is this the guy?" Is this the guy that was? Um, is this the Robin Hood guy? Because my anecdote to him <laughs> was that, Derek, see Derek Barn. He was talking about the Disney's animated 
animal Robin Hood before. <laughs> now, now everybody's talking about it, but he was the original person who was talking about it and highlighting the fact that the sheriff is taxing the peasants and taking away their coins. And he's saying they wouldn't even have coins. They would have been paid in kind. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, interestingly, um, I've been recently talking to MMTers and the debate about um, when, when in the medieval period uh, they actually started taking or mandating payment in coin and where, um, uh, which is, a weirdly more complicated topic than you would think it would be you, like, yeah, of course they paid him money or of course they didn't. And actually it's, it's like Shire level dependent on oh, wow. how, on how they collected taxes. Yeah. I think I, yeah. I, where, where did you discuss that? Did you? Uh, with Colin Drum, cause he's a specialist in the history of English money in specific. He's sort of a post a modern monetary theorist. Um, and I say post it's, because he's frustrated with them. So, it was that was that on the zero books feed or is that on another feed? It's on yeah, yeah it's on the zero books feed. I think seventy five percent of what I do is sub licensed to zero because it's my second employer. Um, well, my second contract job. I'm not technically employed for it, and because okay. uh, I, I don't draw a paycheck from the UK, but they give me money somehow. Um, okay. okay. Uh, no, I'm not very vague actually... about that. But that was yeah. actually my 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 second note here was I think was like you know I I think you were on Alpha and Omega years ago too right talking yeah. about MMT and so that I remember thinking whoa what the hell are these guys talking about this because I'm supposed to be like whatever know about economics and I've never heard of it and then but then but then obviously when it came around in like the the stupid well not stupid but I don't like this Bloomberg podcast that my <laughs> my my friends always send me links to but you know they started talking about it and I was just had yeah it's I, just part- it, I just I just sent it back to me like aha I was on top of this years ago thanks to <laughs> thanks well to yeah I would actually say like uh we were talking about MMT back when MMT which was still in the popular mind distinguishing itself from post-Keynesianism our um, which for people who aren't into obscure heterodox economic positions, it's, that's actually such a fine point comb difference that even I'm not quite sure what the difference is. Actually, it seems to be uh-huh. whether or not you think you can say money is fake. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Like, well, so, like, well, so yeah, so I, I find my, I, we could, we could do an hour on that, but I guess. Yeah, um, just totally. We could. I'm. I've been, um, I, I, so I joined the, I joined, I, I had been a zero books Patreon guy and I, I, I dropped off. Cause I think, I think Doug was just, I don't know. He wasn't interviewing people that I was interested in there for like, I don't know, a year back or so. And, um, and then it's recently, it seems to be, it seems to have been more interesting and everything. I, I want to hear everything that goes on in that freaking parrot room. So uh, I've just uh, downloaded all of that. And, uh, but I guess the thing is, is, I just wanted to say is some some blurbs that I think kind of you, you just said recently you said our elites suck, <laughs> which is <laughs> yeah. which is why which is why there's conspiracies. How can you? And then you said you know another thing I think uh, paints you uh, a good picture of you is you say the New Deal was a poison pill, <laughs> and then and then also. Um, Alistair McIntyre is this Marxist who left Marxism and found Thomas Aquinas. And so that's, that's the type of C, C. Derek Varn stuff that I'm, that I'm in it for. Um, 
Um, yeah. So yeah, so that's that that kind of just a rounded out picture with some sound I mean, bites there. Yeah, I, I think one thing that may help people understand a little bit, even though you would have you would have known me still as a left winger when you would encounter me on podcasts, because my I didn't do podcasts when I was on the right. But one of the reasons why I'm very familiar with right wing theory is in the aughts, I was part of the anti-war right, um, which is uh, I was. I like to say that I was Pat Buchanan adjacent without all the racism, but um, it's it's kind of hard to be Pat Buchanan adjacent without all the racism, which is why I didn't stay in that field of politics. Um, and that, the other thing I was going to say was that maybe the only thing that we would from the jump agree on politically is like, Pete Buttigieg not great and Dick Cheney Dick Cheney sucks and uh, yes. pri pri private prisons should be abolished uh, and then we could I'm sure there's lots of things we could agree on uh, yeah I was about to say probably agree on a lot more than people are comfortable with but sure yeah. and those are positions that I oh Pete Buttigieg wasn't around when I was a right winger but those positions <laughs> haven't changed in 20 years even if my nominal politics has um yeah. But I think so, that, that, but that's, that's super interesting because obviously I think you can, that, that's the thing that's missing with a lot of people is even just being able to sympathize with the other side. Mm -hmm. And I don't, and I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I probably would be able to, if, if it hadn't been for just like, I think that Doug is just the sweetest, nicest guy in the world. And he, 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 well, I'm, he, he bends over backwards to try and. Um, as long as you I don't, don't talk shit about Hegel. Oh. <laughs> be be fair, be fair, be fair, be fair, be fair to to other people and stuff. And uh, yeah, he's stuff. So, he's yeah. good about that. Yeah, um, just don't talk crap about Hegel because we didn't speak for a year, partly over that. <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! And I think of you guys as like uh, two peas in a pod. So anyhow, we I will um go on with my. I, I have a couple of warm up questions here because I'm trying mm -hmm. to be like a a professional, cool podcast person. And uh, I just wanted to say, uh, so Derek, are you wearing any cologne right now? Yeah, I actually don't wear anything with a scent because I have severe eczema that I developed okay. in the last three years from coming back to America. Um, oh, Jesus. Is so, that the water or what is it? I don't know. Um, so it's, it's uh, so I guess I smell like, like sandalwood beard oil if i smell like anything okay and, and, and that's, um that's the only uh, scent i wear on my body at all okay you know what's interesting what's, what's what's i'll tell you what's not interesting is whenever i go back to the u.s uh i just my skin just goes absolutely haywater and we have like super heavy water here so i don't know what the deal is but um i've got my own trials and tribulations with the water in the u.s um and in, and also, I am wearing a sandalwood uh, <laughs> unisex diptyque uh, Dao Tum or something like that, mm -hmm. uh, which I normally I normally don't go that high end, but uh, I really like sandalwood. So hey, who would have known? We kind of <laughs> yeah, I prefer to smell like sandalwood, or I I, I prefer to smell like wood in general. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> um, already. 
but yeah, I don't so, wear cologne or anything advanced like that. I, 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 I never, I never did either. And I thought it was like a really horrible thing to do, but it's really um, kind of a fun thing to do when it's just a uh, gray skies out and super cold and you haven't left your flat and you know, there's nothing, literally nothing else to do. And you're trying to not like drink at, you know, during the week in the middle of the day <laughs> and you're not trying to just uh, eat massive amounts of carbs and candy and stuff like that. There's no, like no, yeah, no enjoyment to life. So it's like this nice uh, non- non-carb enjoyment of life but um and then the second question is what's your relationship with brett easton ellis if, if any oh god so um uh i read um uh american psycho probably when i was like 12 or something like that like something i read it way too, young, way too young before the, it was several years before the the movie, which which is one of the few movies that I think is arguably it's maybe not better than the book, but it's a completely different work of art in a way that I find interesting. And I think, I think it's, what go ahead. I would t- I totally agree. Um, uh, but you know, I I hear I can't bring myself to follow who's being canceled or uncanceled at any given time. Unlike my friend, Doug, this seems to be his like <laughs> bread and brother these days is trying to figure out if the cancelization to use a bad word that I just made up is, yeah. um, is just, but uh, I've tried to listen to his podcast and I thought he was a pretentious Gen Xer. Um, and as a, as a borderline Gen Xer, I'm really aware of like feeling like I, like I'm somewhere between the millennial and Gen X world in a way that makes me uncomfortable. Um, so I guess the, the long and short of it is I was really into him 20 years ago and I still would vouch by his work. I think there, I think like an author we're probably are going to talk about today, David Foster Wallace, a lot of the backlash against him is kind of unfair or, or overstated maybe more than even unfair, but um I also think um, he's he always seemed a little bit narcissistic to me. So sure, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's answer your question. Um, I thought it was cool twenty years ago, and I don't really care anymore. So that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's, a, that's a great answer. That's all we're that's all we're looking for. Um, so yeah, no, actually, I, I've I've led you astray. We're not really gonna. I we probably we don't have time to to talk about that because we've got enough to talk about. So we're not going to talk about David Foster Wallace, but I was just going to mention that um, I ask, I ask the, the folks that come on to, to uh, list their favorites and then some overrateds in each section. And then there, the, the whole gist of the pod is the hidden gems, which as I've said before, I can't think of a better word than hidden gems. <laughs> so I'm mm-hmm. going with it. Um but you basically, when you came back with your favorite nonfiction books, they were all like, I mean, single digit, <laughs> single digit reviews on Amazon. <laughs> and yeah. I, I checked, I would like check, check like Amazon UK. I thought, okay, oh wait, no, I'm not on amazon.com. So I go to amazon.com and it's like the same number. But, um, but uh, so I said, oh, so Derek, you did the hard part of my little, my stupid little game here. You did the hard part right away. But so I, I scratched your Goodreads and that. So uh, you gave five stars to a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Which is fun. Which is fun. Yeah. Or you, so yeah, you, yeah, I don't know. I think, oh, I, I, think I think David I, Foster Wallace's nonfiction is actually like top notch. And one of the things I'm really. 
upset about in this current backlash against him um i guess because he was a womanizer i mean he's not he they haven't post posthumously me to him he just was a womanizer um i i and so it's uncool to like him now um is that his nonfiction essays are kind of brilliant and his stories are kind of interesting thought exercises and his novels are thought exercises that are both very well written and way too fucking long. Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of my early career um, in the late nineties and the aughts, you know, when I was in undergrad and grad school, basically making fun of David Foster Wallace um like i would i would put footnotes onto poems and essays unnecessarily that had nothing to do with anything um right and stuff like that because he does that in infinite jest but sure. i think I, I i think his nonfiction is actually kind of brilliant and there's another book by him that i would tell people to look up um it's everything and nothing which is the history of the guy who discovered the concept of infinity and went insane um and it's one of the three books uh david foster wallace wrote before he killed himself um there's that there's the pale the pale king which was not finished which is literally a massive novel about boredom which is also as boring as it sounds like it would be and oblivion which is a a, um a series of short stories which are very good but um kind of wore a hint so okay um jesus yeah yeah. that's the thing that's hard wait you're saying you're saying the pale king is super boring Mm mm-hmm Oh, Jesus. I was hoping it was going to be good. Um, well, I mean, it's it's conce- it's Roe Witten. It's con- it's just conceptually about boredom, and that's exactly what oh. you think it would be. Oh, like, yeah, so it's so funny because I'm, I'm I'm quick to like want to jump into him again, but I think I'm like I'm, I'm at like 70% of Infinite Jest and it about ruined reading for me. <laughs> like, because I was it's so, it's so depressing. It's so depressing to know that he killed himself and like you know, like whatever, like, uh, I'd have to like read it on a beach to not. Yeah. So any, yeah. So I have a love hate relationship with him, but I'm, yeah, I'm definitely come down, I come down on the positive side of it, but, and then we, you also have down here as a five-star is that, so this is just kind of, that was a good way to give folks kind of let them triangulate you, um, to find out if they want to follow you down the rabbit hole to your hidden gems because they are obscure. I have a 1912 Wilson Roosevelt Taft and Debs, the election that changed the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you know anything about that book and then, uh, and then Carl Sagan, demon haunted world science as a candle in the dark. is also, it's also a five-star, which we're just not, those are more for the, for the listeners just to, if they've read those or if they have an opinion on those then they can say, Oh, this guy's out sailing or, okay. I, I think I like this guy. Um, and so let's go into your, as I sigh into the mic, um, let's go to your, <laughs> let's go to your first. So actually this is the one that I will have uh, the most to maybe say about uh, is the agony of the American left, which you put at three, even though you're writing a book on this guy. And is this, I am. Is, is Carl, uh, it's not Carl Sagan, is uh, Christopher Lash. Right. Is he, uh, I don't know what I was gonna say. Is he, is he, he's obviously a favorite guy. <laughs> well, um, I mean, yeah. I mean, Christopher Lash is interesting because he's the, he's one of the Marxists that paleo conservatives like. Um, which is a kind of weird special category, right? I actually read him um, when I was not a Marxist and then I reread him 
because he became popular again and sort of uh, people who like to call themselves post left, which I think is uh, a coward's way out of just, you know, saying you don't really believe in the left anymore and, uh, and probably hold the populist or conservative tendencies. Um, which is, I guess, my controversial swing and swing there, but uh, he's popular amongst that crowd and popular amongst a lot of people who who in America get called Clash Unity Marxist or something like that. I mean, Clash Unity Socialist in the DSA. Um, I think they actually don't read him very well, um, but you know, um, this uh, the Agony of the American Left is one of three books he wrote in his sort of first four books. Um, and these three books are all like a history of the American left leading up to the new left in the 60s and kind of ending in the Nixon administration, which is when he is writing basically these these three collections of essays. Um, and what the agony of the American left is about is the fact that the American left really couldn't figure out how to deal with a crisis in liberalism Um and his thesis, if I was to simplify it, there's actually many theses because they're essays, but the, the overarching thesis is progressivism won out by able to co-opting elements of the different left-wing movements that were more radical, but it won out in a way that actually saves the status quo, not really undoes it. Um, and what is interesting about Lash is a lot of people in America would agree with that, but they think that happens in the 60s. And what Lash shows in that book is it really began in the 1920s. Um, so let me, let me just break in here. And I guess I would say that I've been, I think I bought, I bought cultural narcissism in like 2011 when mm -hmm. Stephen, Stephen Metcalf on the Slate Culture Block Gabfest was saying it was awesome. And and so then it, and I never read it. And then in this, whatever, this past month while we've been chatting, I, I, uh, I listened, I, I audiobooked it. And so I was literally checking Audible like every two months to see if it came out on audiobook. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I got it and I listened to like 20 minutes of it. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and then, and then I also uh, audiobooked your overrated pick and then, read this agony of the american left and um it's funny that cultural narcissism i wonder did cultural narcissism just bleed so thoroughly into the culture yeah i mean he that, wrote a that, whole that, that, that nothing that nothing he says in that is that interesting because it's all been diffused so thoroughly yes and no so one of the things is uh in cultural narcissism he's misunderstood a lot but but like he's writing in this way that maybe and for a leftist, it's going to sound weird, but he's too clear. Um, but he's also he's he's actually so if he's an academic, I don't know how many or he is an academic. But, yeah, he's um, a he's a cultural historian. But he writes in a, he writes in a way that you you can actually audiobook it and pay attention to what's going on and right. You know, it's, it's not going to get totally lost on you as if you try to like whatever I don't know audiobook Rorty or something. Not Rorty, but uh, yeah, yeah, one of like Rorty's Rorty or or Adorno or Foucault or any of those yeah, things. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So oh sorry, please continue that. No, but culture yeah, cultural cultural narcissism. I think part of it's become commonplace. I mean, that book got him an audience with with Jimmy Carter. You know, so you have a Marxist academic who was invited to the White House in the late seventies, but he also wrote an entire book called "The Minimal Self," explaining how no one actually understood um, cultural narcissism, and no one reads that book. 
So it's there's he actually wrote a key to it because he, he, he felt like he was perhaps too approachable and too clear and people read um, very commonplace ideas into um, the book. I, I would uh, I would actually venture to say I almost put cultural narcissism in my uh, overrated um, category, but I think it's a really good book. I just think most people's interpretations of it. If you don't know the rest of his work, it just sounds like it sounds like bromides. It's just like, oh, yeah, of course. Like since the 70s, everyone's been self-interested, blah, blah, blah. You know? Yeah. And I guess that, yeah. And so I guess that's what I'm saying is if it was more revolutionary for him to say that, then, then it was, then, then it was, or yeah, then it was more interesting as well. And I, I guess the other thing is in cultural narcissism, I was wondering if that's where Adam Curtis got his whole bit about, is it in hypernormalization where he talks about the, the leftists retreating into their art and retreating into their self-care or something like that. I assume. I, I assume haven't been able to pin it down, but I've watched for, uh, recently, I, I did a, the, you know his psychological history of the 20th century, which I, which I did a whole panel where I said only two good things about it, um, and I did um, I've watched pretty much all of Curtis's uh, over. I almost put him on my overrated list too, but you didn't have a documentary section. Um, yeah, no, that, that's a, no, that's fine. I'm not I'm not like a bigot here. I, I uh... but but I think I think he is. I think uh, Curtis is kind of picking up on. Uh, on Lash's thesis, I, I was really noticing that in his in his reading of the '60s and '70s, but he doesn't ever mention Lash that explicitly. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He doesn't mention it, and so if you haven't read Cultural Narcissism, then it seems like, oh wow, cool insight, uh, Mr. Curtis. Um, but then, it, but then having this, having hearing Christopher Lash say the same exact thing, it seems like a and much closer to the time it was happening. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it's, it, yeah. Yeah, so so that, I thought that was kind of underhanded of him not to even draw a line under that. Um, but I think, and having listened, you have some a good series. I think it's just two. Are you going to do some more podcasts on him with your co-author? Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, we're gonna do we're gonna do one on each of the sections of the book. The next one we're gonna do probably in about a couple of months. My co-author is finishing her comps right now, so uh, we're on back on backlog while she finishes her PhD. But. Um, we're going to do one on the middle three books, which is uh, Haven in a Heartless World, Cultural Narcissism, and The Minimal Self, which is a book just explaining how everybody misunderstood cultural narcissism. And then we're going to do um, another podcast on the last two, which is uh, uh, the, true, the, the True and Only Heaven, which is uh, Lash's Critique of Progress, and The Revolt of the Elites, which is a book Lash never even wanted published. So, um, okay. So, and I guess this, um, and if just if someone isn't already convinced that, like, whatever, that 10 years ago a progressive was saying to read him and you were reading him as a conservative, and I've listened to him now and found him interesting. And, uh, I think like Curtis Jarvin was interviewed by like some full blown Nazis and they, <laughs> they, they had a podcast. <laughs> on him as well oh, so, good old mole bug um, yeah so but that, that's a, that's a side we'll do a, we'll do that for a bonus section but i'm just saying that it seems like if everybody so long after he's written is interested in hearing what he has to say or thinks that he was prophetic then uh then yeah then he's a good guy to do a deep dive on i think yeah he he died in 1991 um his last book was published in 1993 
Um, he's he's man. I, I, I every it feels like every ten years he comes up. So there was also a spate of articles about him when Trump got elected. You know, because everyone's like Trump, the ultimate narcissist, and I was like, well, you know, but. So yeah, that's that's why I'm writing a book on him with Shalon Batine. Um, Shalon is the uh, the student of one of Lash's students, um, Kevin. I forgot his name. Um, he teaches at University of Ohio and was the person who actually sat in the chair when Lash left teaching. Um, uh, Shalon's mentor took over his classes, and he's actually been kind of giving us hints on things we should read to understand um, the context, which I think is often not addressed. The only book on Lash um, that I've read uh, that goes into him in detail is by a Christian who kind of paints, who wrote a quasi-biography of him that kind of paints him as like a, a secret Christian, but I don't have a lot of evidence for that so far. So, um, what we're trying to do is go into particularly what he has to say about like the left in America, because he, he was doing sort of what, I mean, um, he was doing sort of what pop the left, my original podcast was about, which is trying to critique the left from its own standards and just pointing out how bad um, it is unable to live up to any of its ideals. But he was doing that in the 60s. So. Yeah, and so I think I think you have an uphill battle on your hands because I think I kind of when you when you're for after reading anger on the left and and revolt of the elites obviously particularly mm-hmm. I feel like you saying that um, I, I trust you and I'm 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 willing to you know I'm willing to 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 definitely um, have, whatever take go go wherever you say on that but it almost seems like my mom like claiming like Martin Luther died a Catholic. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> and like you say, like, oh, he was he was a leftist, but I'm like everything that he's saying is seems, but I think if he's assuming, he's assuming that everyone knows his leftist bona fides, I think. And then because at the very end of agony of the left, um he actually says, uh, I think I'll read it when when we when we're wrapping it up. Um and it's it's jolting. <laughs> Because you've been reading this whole book where he's been, seems like he's been saying something that Pat Buchanan would say. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, he basically comes out and says like, um, you know, whatever, imperialism bad or something like that. It doesn't, you know, and, it, and, it, and, it, and, it's, and it's jolting. And if I had heard you on those podcasts talk about people who are misinterpreting him, I would totally, uh, you know, not gotten that from reading him, I don't think. Not, not until you get to the very end. I mean, the, the, I will say, in, after 1987, Lash considers himself something more like Wendell Berry, um, which means he considers himself kind of um, a Marxist communitarian, no longer a leftist, not because he thinks he's changed, but he thinks the left has changed so significantly in the course of the 70s that um, he doesn't really have any identification with it anymore. I mean, he actually sees it as an agent of capitalist expansion. Um, so, which is not, which is not what I would have thought. I would have said, though, he just stood still and said everybody else got more uh, weird than him. He's actually saying that, uh, like, he stood still and the left went right or something almost. A little well, bit. yeah, basically. I mean, and he yeah. also says that 
I mean, his critique in um, there's a uh, three essays he wrote for or two essays in a in, in a series of four that he wrote in dialogue with two order authors for Takoon magazine, which is like a left um, Jewish magazine. And he wrote it in 1987. And one of the essays is by a Marxist who's kind of, you know, some drippy tr American trot that no one would remember. And I mean, even I don't, and I know the history of Trotskyism pretty well. And, um, and then a feminist author and he tries in the first one to stake out like a position that is basically the right talks to working people's problems, but then gives them an answer that's horseshit. Mm. And the left just avoids the question entirely. And, and he gets so frustrated with the responses in those two response essays that he says, like, look, I would... I would consider myself, you know, a leftist, but because of you guys, there's basically no space for me. So I'm out on my own. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not going to go to the right because the American right's going to like sell some individualist mythology as some kind of traditionalism that isn't true. Um, but if you guys are like talking about like inclusion of, you know, fem you know, as female bosses are somehow a victory for the proletariat, you're obviously lying um then i have no place to go yeah so i'm out and it's so out. it's very similar to wendell berry actually it's an, another uh american author who did a similar move in the 90s okay and so i i went through my i took a lot of notes and i put down some of my whatever highlights here but mm -hmm. i think i don't think we i think we're not i think we're good we're good to go on that but what what's do you know what he's talking about this populism movement where they're talking about giving like free the free silver populism do you know offhand what he's talking about william jennings bryant and the and like the populism of the 1890s which was actually um what's considered a left-wing movement in its day and it was a movement of sharecroppers and farmers, small landholders, they literally were a serious enough threat that they took over state houses in the Midwest in the, at the turn of the century, yeah, the 20th century. Um, what happened to them is they couldn't really stake out a position separate from the Democrats. Um, okay. And um, so half of them get absorbed in the Democrats and the other half as Lash actually documents in the book, get more and more into conspiracy theories. Like, you know, um, you might, you know, he doesn't say this, but you might even see it as like, you know, um, a kind of the proto left wing of fascism or whatever with people who are, who start seeing like the Illuminati or the Jews or whoever as why the, you know, the working man can't give a shake. Um, he also writes a lot about the early socialist and union movement, um, particularly the, um, the Knights of Labor who were, um, is it, is it talking about that? Lash is talking about that in Agony of the Left. Yeah, he does uh, a whole chapter see. on um, on 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 the Deb socialist movement and how it was so and how it was so large. And it's still, okay. yeah, it's I, still hard to to for most Americans to conceptualize how big that left was. I mean, not only that it controlled seventeen percent of the popular vote, like it was it was big enough that most of the unions in the United States were coordinated under one banner under it. Um, this is pre-World War One. This is, this is pre-World War One. So okay. it, it, it's yeah. really strong between 1905 and 1916. 
World War One basically destroys it because there's two things that happens that it doesn't know how to respond to. It doesn't know how to respond to the Russian Revolution, and it doesn't know how to respond to um, uh, basically World War One because they're up, they take it they actually join with the far right in the United States at the same time and taking an abstentionist, you know, isolationist position, and they're in prison for it. I mean, Debs goes to prison for it. In fact, that book that you mentioned that I read at Fab Stars is actually about that election and how Debs ends up in prison by the end of it. Um, Wilson tries to get rid of his competition to the left. And uh, that, that goes into the point of saying that this in, in Girard, is it Girard, Kansas, the socialist mm-hmm. paper has a 700,000 uh, weekly subscription, yep. which is, is crazy. And that's so... I, I I know Kansas and Missouri, and that that's down by like Pittsburgh, Kansas. But like, right. I don't think anyone has ever heard of the city in Kansas. So that's just like that. That right there is a shock. Is it's more of a shock to the system if you know any of that geography that a paper down there could somehow have that insane circulation, um, and be a a, a, a full blown Marxist socialist paper. Full blown. Yeah, it, it pretty it's much called, was. It's, it's called it, an, an appeal. An appeal to reason. Right. As I name my, my name my paper if I had one. <laughs> it was a it was a Marxist socialist paper. It the, the Bolshevik Revolution threw a lot of those people into a total tailspin. Um and then the Red Scare afterwards did too. A lot of them fled to Canada, some of them became conservatives. Um uh, Thomas Frank and What's the Matter with Kansas, which is a book that's a little bit of a kind of popular treatment of the same problem, talks about this, like how the how the socialist and populist movement like was huge in the upper Midwest and the Midwest. And in the sixties, it completely dies. Um, Largely because the union movement completely dies. And so Lash actually talks a lot about that in the adding in the American left, because they're always looking for some like new subject of revolution, be it, you know, black nationalism, which he has some respect for, but he actually respects like, he respects, for example, the Nation of Islam probably more than he does the civil rights movement. Um, uh, he, he writes um, pretty cogently about the feminist movement, about how its radicals get su- kind of subverted into kind of... Well, so I, let me read my little bit here. Because he basically says, uh, fem- feminism died not because it accomplished what it set out to accomplish, but because it lost sight of the conditions which it had which had called it into being. In the end, women won the vote and achieved semi-official status, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, he points out that the women run... They, 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 they didn't win what they... Which feminism as its most radical had attacked, nor did they even make it possible for women to compete more effectively for jobs. They merely gave women the time to be ladies. This is kind of... Exactly. Crushing, yeah. But no, that's a, he. I mean, he touches on yeah. He basically he covers everything. He's covering feminism. He's covering, and so what? So what did these populists? They wanted to give people silver as a stake, and they wanted to actually. What they wanted to do is they want to give. They wanted to. It's actually similar to MMT now. They wanted to weaken um, the currency because a, a deflationary currency makes debts more valuable over time. So they wanted a weaker currency, which they they still thought it had to be pegged to something, unlike after the 70s uh, in America. So they wanted it pegged to silver, which was less, which was less deflationary. Um, um, so they wanted basically they wanted debts to be devalued. So they wanted something like a 
not for them to be forgiven, but for them to right. just be like for the um with silver money, the idea was silver's not a scarce, so um it would be easier for the, to find more pockets of silver, meaning that there'd be a less of a deflationary pressure on money. So the debt would either stay the same or get weaker over time and it would be easier to pay off. And so the, right. the okay. sharecroppers could pay off their debt in good stead um, without them being explicitly forgiven uh, and right. they'd be able that sounds, to- That sounds like, that sounds genius. Yeah, I mean, it's it was the position, it was the position of William Jennings Bryant. William Jennings Bryant's interesting because he's famous for two things. He's famous for this and the Cross of Gold speech. Um, and he's also famous for um, being the person prosecuting the Darwinist in the Scopes Monkey trial. Sure. Okay. That's um, where I would have known him from, honestly. Right. I mean, but it's interesting because basically the the Southern Baptists at this time were actually on the side of the populist and the socialist. That was the, that now you know now they're basically a, a auxiliary of the Republican Party. So like. It, it, when I tell people this in America, they're just shocked. They, they don't even know how to deal with it because Americans don't know their own history. And this is one of the reasons why I suggest this book in particular. You know, you have an international audience, probably more British than American, but people actually, despite the influence of the U.S. left on world affairs, the U.S. left doesn't study its own history before 1965. Um, and, you know, maybe they'll, like, do some wankery about the New Deal. But um, in general, they don't know anything. Like, even when they talk about the New Deal, they get the New Deal and, like, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society confused is what they think the programs were. Right. So, so they, like, they don't even really know what the hell they're talking about. So, like, they don't have any idea about this left-wing history in the United States. It'll come up occasionally and um, someone like Tom, uh, I mentioned Tom Frank, he's the editor of The Baffler. He's kind of a left populist. Um, they'll bring it up every now and then, but that's, that's really, you know, something that's like a memory hole in the U.S. And it starts with, in, you know, and actually Lash calls it in the book that we're talking about, Agony of the American Left. It starts with, um, with the Brahmin New England elite glomming on the progressivism that kind of saved themselves like everything prior to that almost gets erased from history so most people don't know that like the populist actually control state houses and they got into almost shooting battles with with republicans and democrats in different states for control of those houses um that the socialist had a third of the, you know, a third to a fifth of the U.S. vote, depending on how you counted in 1917. And that's part of what pushed the Red Scare, particularly after the Russian Revolution. Um, and it also is why things like the New Deal happened. I mean, it's both to make a lot of labor a lot safer, because one of the conditions under the New Deal is this, is the Marxist-Leninist, you know, uh, CPUSA makes a deal with in the Popular Front with the with the Democratic Party to basically suppress um, strikes during World War II. Mm. Um, and the CIO, which is the more radical union faction, holds to that. So, you know, and, and it actually ends up, I think by the 60s is why the unions were seen as largely discredited. And I know people are kind of shocked that it happens that early, but it does. Okay. All right, yeah. 
so they've caved. So, well, there's there's scads to talk about here. And I, the thing that when you're saying that it's not it's not touched on, it's not really like, you know, if you're just um, uh, if you're just if you're just some Malcolm Gladwell audio booking shit brick, you know, like I'm which which I'm saying that that's I'm not saying that's me, but that's not that's not not that's me. not not you yeah that's not not me um you know you would you would think that you would think that um somebody would be pulling out of this um whatever civil war to world war one there's there's a wealth of interesting little anecdotes that you could whatever you know well yeah i mean how many people in america know that in 1890 was a bigger depression than the great depression like almost nobody well, and even I guess you know, and I, I feel like I've I don't I don't really um, chug them that hard, but like even the even the whatever precious metals, even my precious metal podcast boys, you know, they're not even you know he he the this Jim Rickards guy he was talking about how it sounded like Roosevelt did a similar thing with increasing the buyback. Yeah, amount amount of gold with what these kind of silver guys wanted to do, and he was he was basically saying that right now we should do the whole same thing again. But he's a he's a whatever gold bug. He's you know people, some people you know he's not exactly taken completely seriously. But uh, but it's a very it's an interesting corollary to the silver thing. I was just going to let's see try and find this uh, last little bit that he has here about. Um, and then, and then we move on to uh, to your number to your number two because this is just your number three, but it's the one that I read, so that's why we're laboring it. Um, and it's also it's chock full of good stuff. Um, liberalism does not address itself to this question; it proposes only an extension of the welfare state. Nor does it address itself to the disintegration of values, the alarming spread of nihilism and alienation, which is bound up with the social and economic crisis of liberal capitalism, the liberal values of self-reliance, sexual self-discipline, ambition, acquisition, and accomplishment, while often admirable in themselves, have come to be embodied in a social order resting on imperialism, elitism, racism, and inhuman acts of technological destruction. So here I am, I'm thinking it's me, Peter Thiel, and Christopher Lash, and then he just comes out with that. <laughs> and and uh, no, I'm joking, but, uh, but it, but that there's not there's not very much of that in the book because you like you said it's a leftist critiquing the left mainly. Um, yeah, so. it, I mean, basically, Lash's whole career is based on the idea that the left unknowingly and somewhat unintentionally betrayed itself in the 1930s and never recovered and couldn't deal with the fact it did that. Um, his central thesis is basically progressivism sold you out. Um, you know, whether it be feminism, whether it be black nationalism, whether it be populism or socialism, he basically says the progressives stole ideas that were popular, but were conducive to different, different frameworks of capital. In the 60s, he's writing about, you know, late Fordism. And in the 80s, he's writing about neoliberalism. Um, although, interestingly, I think in the book you read, he uses neoliberalism in a different way than we use it currently. So... Yeah, I don't know if I if I appreciated that, but okay. So number two, the dialectics of defeat by Russell Jacoby. Yeah, uh, Russell Jacoby is another kind of um, uh, quasi. He's a Marxist, but um, in the more cultural turn, and he talks about how 
um, there was two threads of thought in Marxism. There was a, and they actually don't go back to Marx to go back to Hegel. It's the science of logic and history has to go inevitably a certain way thread, which gets associated with the Bolsheviks, particularly after 1927 when Stalin takes over the Soviet Union. Um, and then there is the phenomenological, like, humanistic Marxism of what he sees as the left communist and the left opposition um, to the USSR. Um, and he goes through and traces how this played out. The basically... Um, the phenomenological Hegelians look good in hindsight, but they lost every battle um, in politics. So, you know, they said, you know, communism wasn't inevitable, that um, you had to deal with the contradictions of capitalist production, and that there was no, you know, there was no reason why the workers would automatically side with the socialists. Um, and there's, you know, there's a bunch of other things, too, in that. And then he points out that, like, this leads to the humanist tradition and the left communist tradition, but that the Bolsheviks were really good at playing the, um, the Marxist center, which is uh, social Democrats and Leninists, against these people in such a way they could kind of use them for their internal politics in Russia, um, but at an expense that eventually, and he wrote this in the 70s, so it's interesting because he kind of predicts that the Soviet Union won't be able to hold, mm. but that eventually undercuts Marxism to such a degree that it undoes its original project. And so, you know, that's why it's called the dialectic of the feed, that you have two, you know, two kind of major strains of Marxism going, going back to uh, Hegelianism and that one is more concerned with the individual and with freedom, even if they don't believe in markets or capitalism. And one is more concerned with the end of the inevitability of communism. And the inevitableist won politically, but historically they don't look good. Um, mm -hmm. Even though they won every battle they were in against the, um, the quote, left communist traditions, unquote. So they were basically a, a team that was built for the regular season. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I'm very pleased with myself about that. So this, this book is actually, it's only, only 198 pages or something. Yeah, it's not long. Um, um, and it's on, and it's on YouTube. I, so I listened to about maybe a third of it. This nice woman reads it. And um, I, I, can, I can recommend those recordings because it, it was pretty, it was decent to adjust. And he also speaks very clearly. I think the problem that I had with it was I didn't, he, his words are clear, but I didn't have much of the background info that for the, if you don't know much about communism, this book is yeah. not going to mean much. <laughs> but so what, and so what you think this book is, I mean, obviously it's short, so that's enough mm -hmm. to get it on my favorite, my favorites <laughs> list, but you it, it, it does a job that other books don't do, or it does a job. That other it, books yeah, particularly do when it's better. covering the 19 teens to the thirties in Europe, it talks about things in um, a way Excuse me. That is very hard to. There's not a whole lot of other material on. Um, like he goes through like how Zinoviev, who's a left oppositionist himself, is like playing these parties off of each other in a way that actually undermines the socialist cause in Germany. And 
you know, actually, weirdly, he's the most wrong. In fact, when I wrote my review of this book, I gave it three stars and the author responded to me and said it was the 70s when he wrote it. Um, Sorry, what book are you talking about? Um, Dialectic of the Feet. Oh, um, Russell, so Russell Jacoby, Jacobi actually, he actually responded to my, <laughs> to my review. Because um, I said that, like, the closer to the contemporary time period that he was writing it, the more wrong he is. So, like, he reads all these French you know, heterodox movements, the existentialist Marxists like Sartre and whatever as being Marxist humanist when they were actually Stalinist, but no one in America really knew that yet. Okay. Um, so, so, but he, the time, the... Is the, he saying they're Stalinist or you're saying they're Stalinist? I, I, I'm saying they're Stalinist because they are. Um, okay. And he classic, would admit classic, that... Classic, na- classic Varn right there. Yeah. <laughs> But he would admit that now, but that wasn't really known okay. in the United States when he wrote the book. Okay. okay. Um, gotcha. So it, it, the further back in history it goes, the better that book is. The reason why I don't give it like a five-star rating, even though I think it's super important, is that the closer to his own history it goes, the more he's following trends and in American interpretations of, of European stuff and not what they actually believe. So if you listen to half of it, you actually listen to the better half. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm going to finish it just because it was, I could digest it. I, it's going to go fast. And obviously I want to be able to put it up on Goodreads as read. So yeah, I mean. he, he also doesn't write in like, like Lash, he doesn't write in left wankery. It's just yeah. the history you need to know. So yeah. And so, and, and have you done any deep dive podcasts or is, I, I think yeah. I've heard his, I've heard his name come up, but I, I have been encouraging people to read him, but I haven't, I, everyone keeps on asking me to talk about Lash or some other book. Sure, yeah. yeah. No, but I'm saying, I'm saying no, at no time between 2013 and now, have you, have you, uh, you and No, I have not. On him. Okay, okay, that's good, but that's, that's fine. Uh, good to know. I was, I guess I was, I have my little notes here, and the thing is, is he doesn't like, he doesn't like dodge, uh, Thing. You know, he's talking about like whatever the 70 percent of this initial congress uh in the revolution whatever has got executed you know what i mean so it's not like he's he doesn't try he doesn't try to like paint over the no uh, he's very uh, honest about how brutal the actual historical yeah and he's saying was. that marx is honest about their defeats um talks about whatever hegel being an outsider that you know whatever the english traditions ends with Kant and then restarts with Wittgenstein, which I didn't yeah. really know what that meant, but I thought it was sounded interesting. Well, it's, it's just this whole like analytic philosophy doesn't want to deal with German idealism after Kant. So it literally jumps over it and pretends uh, that like Germany okay. doesn't have philosophy until Wittgenstein. Right. Um, okay. But they don't that, talk about Hegel. They don't talk about Fichte. They don't talk about Schopenhauer. They don't talk about, they kind of talk about Nietzsche, but shittily like, you know, Right. Okay. And then you say that Lenin, because I, I don't think I, I don't think I ever really understood why Doug was trying to read Hegel, and I never I never made this, despite listening to thousands of hours of conversation. I, I mean, I, yeah, I still. But he's saying that Lenin's laws came from Hegel. Yeah, so. Lenin, 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 Lenin derives his theories of history from Hegel. Marx is in dialogue with Hegel. Marx is a Marx's academic background is actually first in law, and then in. Um, hegelian interpretations of ancient greek philosophy so he was like into hegelian's understanding of epicureanism okay all right and then i guess the thing that's interesting i was i just was wondering for you to get your uh 
what you think about him because I think the first time I heard of Karl Popper was like Taleb, black, the black swan guy talking about him. Mm. And then I think I have come to hate his ideas. And then here he's saying that Popper really hates Hegel. So how, how should I feel about Karl Popper? So, in I mean, 30, 30 seconds. <laughs> interestingly enough, um, there's a book called uh, Wittgenstein's Poker where it talks about Wittgenstein almost beating Karl Popper to death at a philosophy con- conference. Um, I thought Wittgenstein was in the right. Okay. Um, nice. But I mean, um, Popper's interesting because I think Popper's actually on to something about Plato. Um, but he reads Hegel through that platonic lens. So like this, uh, this idea that like there's a unifying idea and that it leads to a totalitarian state. And then he sees that as the fault of Marxism. What's interesting is that's Marx's critique of Hegel too, is like basically that Hegel makes the state the function of history over time um, and thus ignores a whole lot of other stuff and human relations. Um, so, but Popper would hate that, but Popper probably didn't read enough Marx. Popper, so are, are, are you saying that Popper, did Popper have, he was just a jerk and that's why he deserved to get beaten up or that he actually had bad ideas? I think it's a little bit of both. I think okay. he, A, was a jerk, and B, he... Uh, Which is probably why Taleb likes him. <laughs> right. And B, that he had some... He, he kind of read everything too simplistically. Okay. Um, wasn't giving anybody the benefit of the doubt. Or right. Even, I mean... Wasn't even trying. Popper's student, um, Lakatos, is actually much better on this. And Lakatos is a major influence for me. Um, Lakatos started out as a communist... Um, abandons communism in the 1940s. Um, it actually goes to a gulag for it. Um, moves to the West, um, becomes Karl Popper's student, and then he he talks about Marxism as a degenerated research program. Um, so he talks about Marxism having having been interesting in its initial instantiation as a, a, a kind of theory of economics and history. But as soon as it gets tied up in real politics, it starts like fudging its own edges and becomes and becomes useless. Um, and uh, he, he did always posit that there could be a scientific Marxism. This is where he disagrees with Popper, but that it wasn't um, a scientific um, endeavor, which I actually agree with Lakatos on. Like, okay. I don't think most Marxists are anything are particularly rigorous in their thinking. And when they say the word science, you should properly reach for your revolver. But um, I do think that if you follow the categories out, you could have an interesting um, historiographic research program um, that you don't end up having. Um, Lakatos and Popper disagreed on this, but Lakatos was Popper's student. So like, okay. so, but yeah, I mean, you know, Talib is uh, his own thing. Yeah. yeah, Talib is his own thing. Talib is, is an autodidact. I mean, um, he's all over the place at any given time. Yeah, he <laughs> he attacks everybody. So what's the what's the, I, I forget which Greta Gerwig movie it is, but she says uh, I'm an autodidact. That, that's one of the things I taught myself. Do you know what that is? <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things I taught myself. But so yeah, so I couldn't have any of that in. But this is a good. Uh, so now we'll move on to because we, we're going to run out of time. But um, yeah, we are. <laughs> um, but uh, so how how long how much longer do you have? Uh, probably about forty five minutes. Okay. Okay. Then that'll be that's all right. Um, 
theory as history. I, I think I started this one on YouTube. This one is also on YouTube. I don't know if it's the same gal. Um, and a nice little neat little playlist. Um, but this one's mean I, if you don't know Mark. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't get a, a bite on this one. So this is theory as history by Banji or Banji. Uh, Jairus Banji. He's a, he's a, he's a Trotskyist from India. Um, he wrote theory as history as an answer to this idea that, uh, of Marxist modes of production being clean and clear categories of history. And he's basically taking um, one element of Marxism and applying it to another element to show that like the Soviet Union's interpretation of modes of production doesn't make any sense. Um, if you don't know all this obscure Marxist stuff, this is so arcane that it's just gonna go over your head. But basically, it's it's aimed at proving that, like, when we talk about, like, oh, this is capitalism, this is feudalism, whatever, that there's a whole lot of case categories that don't meet either criterion, and that or periodizations in in left wing historiography are kind of um, they're problematic at best. So. You know, we began talking about Robin Hood and like how you pay taxes in kind, right? Well, I mean, like he would point out that, um, that for example, in the ancient Roman world, um, you have most of the elements of capitalism already existing, but it doesn't come into being. If, if it was just slave mode of production, or as it's actually said in Marxist circles, Asiatic despotism. Um, then you would not be able to have an entire part of Roman society that literally got paid in coin. And that's okay. the soldier corps. So he just points out that you can't simplify these into very simple, clean modes of production over time. Um, but again, if you're not in the Marxist circles, it's going to be like, you know, like, I didn't even know this was a problem. So um, that's... I think it's super important, but I think it's super important to historiographers. I would not suggest like just anybody go and read it. Right. Okay. Okay. Good. Well, so uh, don't feel stupid if you're like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. 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 I think I'm good. I gave it a, I'll, I'll come back. I'll circle back to that one once I've read a hundred other, um, hundred other Marxist texts. Um, okay. Cool. Uh, and so now we're doing, so that was supposedly, that was, what we we're going to say, that's your favorites. Mm. Um, so we, we've kind of, we've got four categories of books here for you. And then we've got, you, we've got your one overrated, which this would be easy to spend an hour on. Uh, the Revolt of the Elite by Christopher Lash. Yeah. But we're not going to, um, what do, I... what do you think of that book? I think it reads like a Steve Bannon rant. So... <laughs> Is that, is that a bad thing, Derek? <laughs> kind of. Um, not, well, I mean, like... But so, okay, so, no, I don't, I don't think, I mean, he, I don't think, I don't think at any point he's trying to obfuscate information. I don't think he's trying no, to... No, 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 what, what he's doing um, there... So I, I'll just give you the context I happen to know from his biography. He didn't think that book was ready to see print. He thought he wrote a very angry book aimed at... Um, the the kind of left-wing academics he was working with in the academy at the time 
as he was dying of cancer. And then towards the end of his life, he's like, it's not ready. I haven't nuanced this enough. I haven't res- like defined my categories and, and, uh, and cleaned it up enough. And so he set it aside. And his daughter, who was kind of a center-right classicist, had it published after his death. Mm, okay. So that, I mean, that makes sense. So do you think that this is a, do you think this is a bad book? Or do you I do think not it's think a, it's a bad book. I okay, think you, people, the reason why I called it overrated. People use it, use it for their, use it for their own. Right. Because it's categories are vague enough that you could be a leftist or rightist or a centrist, read this book and project who you don't like into the elites it, that he's talking about. So who do you think those elites are is going to define what your political position is. And that's kind of a weird problem to have because like, People who have completely opposed politics can read this and bl- and think it's talking about the group of people they dislike. Um, so, like everybody from I think who's the most re- um, Barry Wise, the New York Times ex ex columnist, got suggested yeah. to read it by uh, Red Scare. Um, what I will say is this is where a lot of people, a lot of liberals, get the idea of horseshoe theory. Like that, there's a there, there's a rational relationship between the far left and the far left and the far right, basically because we both hate them, um, and that what Lash was concerned with in that book is that there is a core of educated elite people. Um, he thinks of them. He talks about them as a class. It's hard to see how they are a coherent class, but that's a different question. Okay, so I think this I think this is kind of important because I guess you're you're he he's saying that these things are out in the world, out in the culture, or whatever that are happening, and he's attributing them to a class. Right. Which he, which he I think thinks you could, there's I think, a... could, I think you could read this and miss that miss it. And I'm looking through my notes on Audible here. And I mean, maybe, maybe it's because of how I'm approaching it, but I don't I don't think it is actually because I I think I approach it with with trying to read it from your perspective mm. but like i mean like if you put jordan peterson's name on this i think yeah. people would you believe would, it yeah people would believe it yeah, I, people, people would believe it was written by him because well what's just, funny is you could put uh, jordan peterson or our slavoj zizek on this and they would both work like that's and to me that's the problem with the book is like like you could read this as a right-wing book or a left-wing book and it works either way. And that's kind of a benefit, but it also is kind of a, a problem because you don't really know who exactly um, Lash thinks these elites are. I mean, he does have a theory that, that there is a kind of um, declasse bourgeois group, in particular to America, that has a weird relationship to academia that is not really bourgeois and is also not really working class and is not really petite bourgeois and it's not really even a professional group it's literally a kind of academics who have a lot of of um cultural capital and clout who he sees as basically operating a lot of the educational apparatus towards their own self-interest um and in in a generic way i mean I don't see these people as a class, but I think there is some truth to that thesis. If you look at administration bloat, you look at um, the, I mean, the fact that culture wars left or right have defined, you know, like what mine and your entire life of politics. Um, 
and how ephemeral those really are. Um, I mean, even when we think about like, oh, the new cancel culture wars, like there's four decades of that. Like it comes up every five years. Um, and Lash is responding to that actually pretty early because this book, like I said, was written in the late 80s, early 90s as he was dying. But he didn't want it published. He thought it was he thought it was underdefined. And um, that's really why I think it's overrated is because it didn't he didn't finish it to his own criterion. Not so much that everything it says is stupid or bad. Um, the one thing I will also say is this book to me makes more sense if you've read a lot of Lash, but most people start with this and Culture of Narcissism, which are interestingly, in my mind, actually the two hardest books of him to start with and interpret correctly. So, I mean, I think I think this one, I think this one is gonna just. I mean, I'm sure it already has whatever. I mean, I think I mean I think this this I think this book is just gonna if it hasn't already hit on the rocket ship to the moon i think it's going there because it's it's got and i what i'm looking for in an audiobook is in a nonfiction book is stuff i haven't already heard right mm-hmm. and so he's talking about um sounds like you know he's talking about uh whatever i guess maybe maybe this is a more popular thought now but meritocracy is a smokescreen that keeps the elected the, the the elite in power probably yeah and he's uh, he's writing that in like 1989 like yeah so that's like, like, that's the that's the reason that's the, you have to you have to it, whatever it behooves people to do a deep dive on this guy is because who's who's the person that said like said it first and said it the earliest and was the most correct and i think it's i think it's him and he's it, it whatever meritocracy is a brain drain from the poorer classes and that the newly the the people that do make it via meritocracy, they don't even have the noblesse oblige um, to uh, to look down from where they came from that would benefit, you know, people, uh, you know, at least, at least, whatever, at least you're getting that from the from the old old elites, uh, middle-class nationalism. And then I think the other, the huge kind of reveal, there's a, uh, there's a, lot, there's a lot in here. And so I'm gonna do a little, my little solo pod on it. So I won't bore you with it, Derek, but, um, that social mobility is actually social mobility is actually a negative, not a positive, and is not original to the American dream. Right. I mean, that's, there's all that's kinds pretty, of that's that's huge. I mean, that's whether you agree with it or not. Like I've never heard that idea before, and and I think that and, that, and that's huge. Well, uh, it was yeah. interesting to me because I've just assumed this since I was twenty. Um, so you know, I probably yeah. read that book when I was twenty-two years old. I was a paleoconservative at the time, um, and I was the first of, I'm, I'm from a working class family. I was the first in several generations to get highly educated. I do have for way far back educated family, but you have to go three generations back to find them. And it's, it was interesting because, you know, my parents sold me on this, you know, meritocracy stuff and, and um, going into basically a lot of debt to, to get this way. I mean, another thing that it lashes really precedent on in that book. And again, this is weird for me to talk up a book that I think is overrated, but um, is how dead on he is about the brain drain element that like, um, for example, how much of the quote unquote red states lose most of their intelligent, um, you know, 
people who could help their area to these major cities because of the idea that the meritocracy is central centralized in these major urban areas and that it sucks the it sucks the brain straight out mm-hmm. of you know of um of basically i mean of these uh sort of you know quote unquote cultural backwater states so they can't ever develop on their own and i, I mean i feel that in my own life um, if you were to take, say, Marxist um, systems theory analysis, such as core periphery relations or imperial, non-imperial relations, you actually, what Lash has pointed out, is you see those same patterns that you see between India and the UK, like the best and brightest of India end up in the UK, right? Um, that you see it within these countries, too, and you see it within the United States. So, like, the best and brightest of Georgia end up in New York. Um, sure, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. So, and, and this the other thing is he talks about he says that whatever um, there's like we didn't and so i think his point with the social mobility not being part of the american dream i think that the idea was that you could have a a decent um living mm-hmm. and still remain in your class and you would i i don't know maybe that's what I, did i get the right thing for that that like yeah i think that's what you, you're should, you should theoretically be able to stay where you are and and be able to have a house and have a family and and be happy and you shouldn't and, have to but, quit being working class to have a decent life right like basically or, or right. yeah or yeah, get get or, or kill yourself and get lucky basically um right but then also is also saying that um that the the huge focus on self-esteem obviously had to blossom and had to explode out of this once you once you once you turn up the dials on meritocracy then everyone's at, everyone who doesn't make it is asking themselves why and so then you have to like pump them up with self-esteem classes right i mean one thing he would actually say is um isn't it ironic that uh that these you know these people who are liberal and consider themselves leftists have a hyper individualist philosophy um and to the point that like you can you can completely define your own identity and he would you know he thinks that's obviously sort of ludicrous from from any sort of communicare uh communitarian standpoint left right or center um and you know he thinks that they basically won some kind of culture war in the 70s and have been you know plowing through it um so even as even as I listed as my underrated book, I, I wanted the reason why I listed it is I think it's interesting to talk about because I think he's on to a lot in that book. I just think if you read it by itself or you can project whatever your prior like like I said, if you're Slavoj Zizek or you're Jordan Peterson, you could read that and project whatever you think is already going to be there there. Right. Um, so I guess I, I guess I guess I can see how it annoying from your point of view when you're trying to uh tell other leftists that lash is a good person that it, it is a good person to read and to study and they're they're saying red scare is, is recommending revolt of the elites and then you have to say okay jesus pump the brakes back up that that's kind of annoying and then i don't but i, I think it's also if i mean it could whatever if people people could definitely take it and run with it any direction that they want with it but it's got a lot of i think original good original thought in it as far as yeah uh, i mean so, so, I, so I just i understand why basically what i'm trying to say is i understand why you have it in the overrated but maybe it's just not your classic, i think also if you asked word. me this on a different day i would have given you a different answer <laughs> because i was actually sitting down to write a chapter in the last book when you sent me that and i was like 
the overtones of a release. <laughs> um, I mean, normally I would say something like Slavoj Zizek or Lennon's What Is To Be Done or Overrated. Okay. Um, or, or Jordan Peterson's um, 12 Rules. Although, um, yeah, Peterson is definitely an overrated thinker. Um, it was interesting when I, when I went to a, I, you know, zero books to this Jordan Peterson conference and, um, I sat down with a left-wing Christian and I, what my critique of Jordan Peterson was all, you know, someone asked me to critique him from the, from a religious standpoint. I'm not personally Christian, but I did went through it. And, um, I was like, yeah, he's basically a heretic. And the, and the left-wing Christian didn't even know what to do with my critique. <laughs> he was just like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I mean, like if you, if you really believe these other things and I don't know how you can believe this from Jordan Peterson, um, if you believe in like in very Orthodox Christianity, this, this, and this, and this follow, you're not going to read this as allegory or at least not only as allegory and you can't have all this Nietzsche and you can't have all this Jung and like the left-wing Christian was basically actually more in agreement with Jordan Peterson than the position right. I was, I was espousing. So the, the, it's, it's turned into a, the enemies are your enemies type of thing, I guess. Yeah, sort of. I mean, are your are your friends? So I was just saying this, but um, yeah, but yeah. That's that's I mean, that's a yeah. We could if we if we run out of content, we can come back to yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we won't run out of contact. No, no. Um, okay, and so then this is your actual hidden gem, which I think it, Jesus. I I mean, there's some like YouTube videos on this guy, but he's and he's he's a professor in Southern California, but um, "Demons Are Forever" by uh, Gordon White is it? Yeah, by uh, by um, Gordon S. White. Let me make sure I got that initial right. Um, yeah, Go- uh, David Gordon Wright. Yeah, um, and that's context and exchanges on uh, in Eurasian pandemonium. And that book. So you may know this, but most of the people who've heard us talk about Marxism don't know that my actual historical interest is actually ancient. Um, that what I I read more history and in, in I read more in ancient history and in the origins of uh, modern religions and what we might call the axial age period than I do probably in modern history even. And this book is a kind of religious history of the idea of spirits, particularly in cultures that come out of the Silk Road and how they inform um, Hinduism, um, Christianity and Greco-Roman religion and their various philosophical ideas. Um, if you know about daemons, um, well, that's where both daemon as like what, what, um, Plato calls the higher intellect is that word in Greek, okay. but also it's the root word of demon in Christian theology and the idea of jinn in Islam comes from it, but also, um, spirits in Hinduism, lesser spirits who are not gods are also linked to daemons, whether they be called, um, pretas or, um uh they have a bunch of names and uh he goes through and traces how they're they all kind of trace back to these these religions in west asia and the silk road and that trade spread them around um asia and europe and they develop different ways depending on where the ideas landed um and that they still like they kind of still infect our thoughts so this is sort of a 
this is sort of a deep history, like where are certain patterns that we assume come from, where the cultures originate, and how do we figure it out? And his thesis is basically these proto-Indo-European cultures of the Asian steppes is where we got these ideas from, and they infected all kinds of, of, um, of thinking in a way that kind of brought about the axial age. Um, and this idea what is of- it, what, this, is, what, is it, what is the actual axial So the actual age is where like, you start getting the ideas of individual salvation and religion as opposed to you know, peoples being saved. Um, and so if you study like um, the history of the development of the idea of self and culture, this happens in religion about the time of Christianity, Buddhism, the reforms in Judaism after, the, uh, after Josiah and the, uh, up, you know, the upshotic and, um, and yogic tendencies in Hinduism as opposed to the Vedic. Um, and so he basically says they're all tied to this, this experience of these peoples on the Silk Road and that they get incorporated into literary traditions, um, you know, across, um, basically across Eurasia. Um, and I think it's fascinating. It's pretty speculative, although he's got a lot of sound um, linguistic evidence. Um, you know, he's, a, he's familiar with Sanskrit. He can do a lot of the linguistic deviations um but you are dealing with such deep history that you're in prehistory and um i think he um talks about a lot of the influence on on uh greco-roman thought particularly in the early hellenistic periods coming from the silk road and through persia down into europe um and i find it really fascinating and this idea that there is like a you know a deep intellectual um Genealogy to a lot of our ideas religiously that don't seem to be related, that actually really do um, very much are, and that they're also related to trade routes and individual polities that we might not even remember. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a like, yeah, ultimate origin story type of stuff. Um, yeah. Cool. No, that's, I think, but I think it's a pretty obscure book. <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh 360 pages and yeah it is it is it is obscure let's see what do i does it even have a what does it even have it's brand new so i don't even know that it has like oh is it new okay yeah it's, it's, it's in the last like year uh, oh yeah all right well so amazon for some reason is saying february 1st 2021 oh that's that's kindle yeah um but yeah okay okay yeah cool yeah. I, re I read it. I, I just, it was in my hidden gems because also I just read it when you wrote me. So, okay, yeah, yeah, no, this is, this is super fresh. This is no wonder it doesn't, it doesn't have any reviews on, uh, on Amazon because it, it just came out in January of this year. So, but no, that was a good, that was, that was, a, that was a solid pitch, Derek. <laughs> you should, <laughs> you should, you should, uh, buy you a coffee or something. <laughs> um, so yeah, cool. All right. Well, we're, we're we better start clipping along here. Um, Okay, so now we, we I so I follow you on Goodreads, and I was I kind of threw out some different topics that we could do, and I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll help. we'll do maybe I'll like where end up watching the Holy Mountain or something like that, and uh, <laughs> and, 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 and we'll and we'll talk about uh, I'll have an excuse to dive into uh, some graphic novels or something like that, uh, and 
that no, you, you won't. He, he's like, no, we're going to do this. We're going to do this the hard way. <laughs> we're doing this <laughs> nonfiction books and we're doing poetry. So we went for the highest, highest degree of difficulty, but I, it's been, it's been good. I, I, it's, I think it's great. Um, I think poetry is, is kind of uh, something that I almost kind of equate with like travel or with like maybe like playing like board games or something like that until, until you have, until you have, until you read a poem and are really struck by it, you're not gonna the door is just not gonna be open you know until yeah you, until you go on a, just like a trip and you tra- and you travel and you know, all, there's a lot of people i know that are and obviously in the uk and europe and stuff that are they're, they're traveled nuts and i don't think i've ever i haven't had that revelatory backpacking trip or trip i've i've, tra- I've done different you know i've gone different places and stuff but i'm just not you know it's like movies and things that you can do inside are more my thing. Um, and a lot, and, and a lot of people are like, whatever you have, if you hadn't just had the time of your life board gaming with buddies, then you're going to think board games are pretty lame and you're not going to want to read the rules and stuff like that. So anyhow, I think poetry is very similar to that. Um, and, uh, this is just a good excuse. This is nothing. This is just me hijacking the show, but, uh, I think it's, is it W.S. Murren or something? I'm going to read my favorite poem. Go ahead. Is, his translation of Hadrian, a poem by supposedly by Hadrian called Little Soul. Little soul, little stray, little drifter. Nowhere will now where will you stay? All pale and all alone after the way you used to make fun of things. So I've completely botched that, but um I think I heard that on like uh the poetry podcast back when Garrison Keeler used to host it. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, before he was, uh, I think, isn't that one of the weaker Me Too cases? But uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 one that is mysterious to me because the actual accusations have never been totally, as far as I know, never been totally released. Okay. Um, but um, but anyhow, so that, yeah. that but we'll we'll move on to your stuff. But um, and I, and uh, yeah, when I it did it didn't sound that hot there when I when I botched it, but it's a it's good. And then I I like I like I. I think I bought like Harold Bloom's anthology, which was not really that great. And then I bought like the hundred Britain's hundred favorite poems and that I can recommend, um, you know, Ozzy, Ozymandias and stuff like that, but that's about yeah. where I stopped. So I guess what I'm, what I'm all by way is that it's indulgent on my part, but it's also to, um, I enjoyed, uh, poems that I read that you recommended. So basically if I can enjoy them, then I think anybody can, uh, your favorites, you have two favorites, one overrated poet, and then three hidden gems. Mm-hmm. So, and your number two. So Ben Ben Ramke is he that big of a deal that he's he's a he's, a, he's a big deal if you're into avant garde poetry in America, which would mean okay. no. But okay, but uh, he's a major poet out of um out of Colorado. Um, and he's been writing for about 40 years. Um, and I love his work. Um, his work is very hard to read out loud, actually, okay. <laughs> because okay. of the mocha, you know, the, the, the multivocality of it. The book I suggested, Tendril, is one of the, I think, one of the more approachable of his avant garde works. Um, which you, you might disagree with me because that's just I've read so much Ben Ranky that I was like, I don't know if no, I was I, gonna start, no, where I think, would I, I think, start? Yeah, no, I think I think no, I think it is I think it is approachable. I think it was just I had been um really uh putting myself towards towards your uh hidden gems and and uh mm. and the and the other one and, and so I just nothing, yeah, Alan nothing that I read. 
Mm-hmm. Completely jumped out of me. Okay, so you don't think we're not going to read one of his then? Probably. Well, I can read a poem by him that probably not from the book that I actually suggested. So let me grab Okay. Oh, and then that was that was the other thing. I tried to pin you down. I was like, hey, let's do underrated poems. And then you said you just basically said, no, we're doing books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I let, I'll do uh, Population Genetics from Missing the Moon by Bim Ramke. Um, family. We gathered our tomato steaks from the casket factory. I learned to carve basswood from the prosthesis maker. He let me gather scraps that I turned into birds and small animals of the order Rodentia. The timid species of humans would wander and at night could hear twigs snapping along paths, hear a murmur of clothes against their thighs. The night stayed warm in those days and the moonlight continuous I never saw such a time, but I know a time before memory. There was a time the oxygen was so plentiful that six limb creatures could for a cost burn brighter. They learned to fly and live short lives. During a time the forest would easily flame, sap crackle, enthusiastic into filaments filling the night, filling the days with smoke. Then percentages altered nitrogen gathered, while tiny creatures survived the flame, airborne, learning to pierce the skin of mammals to burn the blood of others. I carved my creatures to live in my own light air. Um, nice. Yeah, I, I love Bim Ramke. I think, I think what I both like about him is also one of the things that I would warn people about him is that you kind of have to be prepared to go almost anywhere intellectually with him in a poem. He might jump to history to like ancient plate tectonics to whatever um, for the sake of an image. I think, I think it reads very stream of conscious and almost dreamlike a lot of the time. Um, And there's also usually a very wry, subtle sense of humor. Like, you know, we, we got our, we got our tomato steaks from the caskets and you know we carved animals out of prosthetic legs even though he doesn't make that obvious when you actually realize what he's saying the images are sometimes hilarious um but he doesn't make it obvious that he's being hilarious at all um he's uh he's a very interesting writer he's pretty old now um i saw him read when i was an undergrad and became fascinated with him um, but he's not, I wouldn't say like, he's a super minor poet either. He's not somebody you can't find on a, you know, um, on a university, you know, press publishing list. He's gonna, he's has won normal awards and stuff. Some of the stuff I suggested you find is very much more obscure than that. So sure. yeah, no, yeah, this, yeah, this, I think this, this is the one that came first <laughs> in the mail. <laughs> right. Um, uh, so, okay. And then, uh, so actually this, so this, um, I think Alan, this Alan Duggan, he must be the most uh, popular one. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's still sort of not, he's not as famous as I would like, um, but I think so. And I also think he's almost the opposite of Ben Ramke and that he is totally deadpan and laconic. Um, But I don't think he is obnoxious like a lot of the plain language poets in America that I really hate. So um, I'd like to read what you, I, I had to read poem seven, which included his last book. Um, although it's basically 
his collected poems, all his poems are in there. So I, I actually, I mean, so I, like I said, when I got those other books, I've tried, you know, and like, I'm a, whatever, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't mainline the Tim Ferriss like I used to, but waking up early and reading some poetry is really, is really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really nice. It's a really nice thing to do. And I said, I don't know why I did that, but I got into that for, for, I don't know, a couple months. And so, you know, you just, I, I would just, uh, uh, read it and that and then obviously being uh, uh, whatever autistic in a, in a bad way I'm not autistic but I like I like to rate I, I was I was going through and I was rating every poem <laughs> on a scale of like one to five or whatever um, but this uh, I think I think I think I might I mean I don't know whether this I just read the last book the seventh one and I don't mm-hmm. know if that one is just really good but you would think that it would be not as good as his earlier stuff because he would have made his name with his earlier stuff. But I, I think I'll, Go ahead. I think, I think I'll, I think I'll read the whole thing. Uh, Go ahead. It's huge. Oh, no, no, not the whole book. I'm, I'm saying, I think, I'll, I think I will continue on and read the whole book. Oh, I think the whole book's worth it. I think yeah. one of the things about him is I think he's, he's one of those, you would call him a mid tier poet, but I think he's, he's amazing. And he's so He's so brutally funny at points that it's just, and and yeah, I mean he's he's very subtle. Um, what what poems from the last book did you like the most? Okay, so uh, the drunken memories of Annie Ann Sexton. Ah, yes. Okay. I I, I mean, I, 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 obviously they were getting you know the two perspectives of it. You know, we're getting the the whatever the guy that doesn't know anything about poetry and and, and then the poet's um mm. take on these things and and i don't know maybe whatever is this guy is this guy is he a little bit too much um uh i was reading i read the forward it sounds like he was um i mean to me this is selling it to me but to someone else it would be damning and you know it sounds like this guy fucks yeah i mean i mean it's like whatever he talks about whatever he's he's talking he's his his uh, genitalia is uh, front and center or something. What is it says? It says something like, uh, well, I forget. He's he's introducing himself or his, his student is is saying something about. It. I mean, you know, he's he's not a he's a he's a manly man. But um, anyhow, so drunken memories of Anne Sexton. This is about it's about a page, but it's thin. Uh, and I guess the reason why the reason why it jumped out at me is because I I felt something after I was done reading it, which I think that's, that's the sign. Um, the first and last time I met my ex-lover, Anne Sexton, was at a protest poetry reading against some anti-constitutional war in Asia, when some ac- academic son of a bitch to test her reputation as a drunk gave her a beer glass full of wine after our reading. She drank it all down while staring me full in the face and then said, I don't care what you think, you know, as if I was her ex-what, husband, lover, what? And just as I was about to say I loved her, I was what was interrupted by my beautiful enemy, Galway Cannell, who said to her, just as I was, just as I was told, your eyes, you have one blue, one green. And there they were, the two beautiful poets staring at each other's beautiful eyes as I drank the lees of her wine. <laughs> I, I, it's not, I, it, yeah, I've, I don't know, I've probably done it a disservice, but uh, I just thought that was like the second poem I read, and I was like, brother. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's great. I'll read my favorite poem. It's um, from, I think, poem six. Um, it's Love Song, I and Thou, um, Alan Dugan. 
Nothing is plumb, level, or square. The studs are bowed. The joists are shaky by nature. No pieces fit any other piece without a gap or a pinch. And bent nails dance all over the surface like maggots. By Christ, I am no carpenter. But I built the roof for myself, the walls for myself, the floors for myself, and got hung up in it myself. I dance with purple thumb at, at this housewarming, drunk with my prime whiskey rage. Oh, I spat Rachel's nails into the framework of my work, and it held. It settled plumb, level, solid, square and true for that great moment, and then it screamed and went on through, skewing as wrong the other way. God damned it, this is hell, but I planned it, sawed it, nailed it, and I will live in it until it kills me. I can nail my left palm to the left-hand cross piece, but I can't do everything myself. I need a hand to nail the right, to the right, a help, a love, a you, a wife. Um, That's great. Yeah, this is this finish is especially strong too. Obviously, yeah, he's he's good at a lot of his poems are they're funny, but they also they pack a punch at the end, and they're very direct. Um, I often think he's also a lot more musical than he reads on the first reading. Like he reads very conversationally, but when you actually like do scansion on the poem, you realize, oh, this actually scans and these syllables actually hold up, mm. um, which is not true for a poet that I'm going to talk about later. But um, which is, is this? Is this your overrated poet? Yeah. We, everybody oh. in America fucking loves William Carlos Williams and I just don't get it. Um so much relies upon a red wheelbarrow by the white chickens. I don't care. Um, he's he's he, what he, what's interesting about William Cos Williams is he's a modernist who is the most interested in common language, at least in the poems that everybody reads from him. If you read like his longer poem Patterson, it's not like that at all. Um, but he's also the poem, the poet that I think is most easily rendered crappily. I mean, there are two poets in America that I think that everybody loves that I think if you read and you start writing like them, you can actually probably ruin your life. And that is Walt Whitman and all the Walt Whitman knockoff poets from um, Carl Sandburg to Allen Ginsberg, who, I mean, and I like works by Sandburg and Ginsberg, but like, really, um, sometimes it's just like, I'm going to make a list for four pages and I'm going to call it a poem. Um, and then you have this plain language stuff. And I think William Carlos Williams is actually really interesting to contrast with the poem that another poet that a lot of people in America like, but they don't really read very deeply. Um, uh, uh, Robert Frost, who I think is maybe even not underrated, but he's so mis he's so read as like a, as a like quirky grandpa of a poet who uses common language in these in a very subtle way that's actually very formal. You know, he writes former poetry and people miss how mean, dark and bitter his poetry actually is. Um, whereas with, with William Carlos Williams, it's just, I feel like there's often just observations that are just very concretely rendered, but that's about it. Um, so, so I have, I have a beautiful, uh, whatever collected works of Robert Frost, which I didn't mention because I figured you, I didn't, I didn't know. I thought you'd slam him or, uh, you no, know, I I super, actually... super uncool, but I, again, my, 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 
my prior boy, Stephen Metcalf, he was really big on the guy that's big on Lash. He was really big on him too. So I, so I whatever followed him into that, but and I, and I have enjoyed it. So that's that's nice to nice to know. I'm not no, I love. I actually, um, I think Robert Frost is a poet that most people don't appreciate because he's overtaught and he's taught in a way that makes him safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is a brutal bitter poet if you know anything about his biography like it's it's like nothing but pain misery misogyny and and misanthropy all hidden in like snowy new england and and sold to you as you know the the poet laureate of america who looks like your grandpa um but he's uh he's a fascinating man i mean he's the kind of man robert floss is the kind of man who would go to a poet's reading that he didn't like like black Lives havel and sit in the back of the room with Blackout Havel's book and just tear out the pages of the poetry book he was reading from as the poet was reading. That's the kind of shit Robert Frost did. And I have to admire that kind of audacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I just, I, I think there's, there's two kinds of plain language poets, and that's part of why I brought William Collis Williams up. There's, to me, there's the Alan Dugans, and there's the, there's the um, Robert Frost of the world who who they seem very simple, but when you actually look at it, it's incredibly intricate and, and very carefully plotted. And then there's like, it sounds good, but it's just common speech. And when you really parse it, it's not always that much more than that. I mean, I know that people have tried to tell me that the red wheelbarrow is really about communism, but I think it pretty much is just about a wheelbarrow. Um, So that's where I stand. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, and and like Whitman, he's probably the most influential poet on American poetics. And I think largely for the negative, because there's just all these poems. We used to refer to them as Mac poems, you know, um, particularly back in the 90s and aughts when I was in my MFA. There was just this kind of like, we're going to spend some common homespun observation about America and vaguely parsed clean clean lines with no rhyme scheme and there'll be something pithy at the end maybe and it you'll read it and then not remember it very well afterwards um and i think i sometimes blame william carlos williams for that movement um okay but yeah that's that's a good justified justified overrated <laughs> you're uh, you've you've laid it enough at his door then in that sense so um number three which which i didn't get uh, he this guy has some he had, does have some readings on youtube um justice yeah uh, tomas where, where uh, is he tomas, from I, I think it's salamon but he's slavian so um okay. and i i told you to read um uh justice I, it's part of a trilogy that was re- released by um, by a Black Ocean Books in America. Um, I think, interestingly, weirdly, even though because he's a European poet, he's act- it's actually hard to read in English in Europe. I think, like a lot of times, you have to read him in, act- in actual Slavian. Um, so, um, I, I think this this stuff is wild. Uh, but so I picked justice what, what, because what is, what is Slav- Slavian? It's a Slavic language. It's a, so it's like a so it's like it's what they speak in Slovenia or yeah what they be? okay multiple multiple Slavic countries right um, okay. so 
Yeah, this one, this one, I, as I told you, this one, this one wouldn't even, uh, it wasn't going to get shipped here until right. two months. I picked Justice out of the trilogy because I like the translator's translations the best in English. Okay. Um, this is the translations by Michael Thomas Terran. And I'll just read a poem for everybody um, from it. I'll read a short one. No need to get super long into this. Um, ah, Anna Nicole Smith. Oh, awesome. <laughs> All right. Rascals salt a salad and use fish. They throw a hammer on foil. The hamster wakes up and speaks at this corner. At this corner, you say a monologue on acid. What if you lose your cap? Let's say you forget it. We would all be pale. Young male cannot lose his cap. Did you see the layer of ice they threw around her lips? No one believed she was like this. She wasn't concerned about his millions. She loved him. And you would roll and roll and breathe and write. In the woods, moles and holes and pressed skyscrapers lived. He lifted his body and stared to the spit in his mouth as if he were a chameleon. All right. Bingo. That's great. Yeah. So it's a uh, very, it's very um, surrealistic. It's also translated into english it's very minimalistic but I, I i can't speak to it in the original language um but he's also good at like he's good at like i think taking the uh common pop cultural reference and making it very very weird and that's sort of one of his specialties i mean you can kind of hear that in that poem that's why i selected it um where you know he's talking about a lot of things, but in the center, you finally get Anna Nicole Smith intrude upon the poem almost. And then, you know, people, um, he chastises people for not believing that she loved the old dead guy that she was crying about and thinking he was only with him for his money. And then goes to this really surreal image at the end, focused on him, like noticing his own spit from the grave. And that's okay. the kind of weirdness you can expect from Thomas Salomon. I think there's a there's a, an American poet who's also from, you know, is also Slavic, um, Thomas, um, not Thomas, Charles Simic, um, who is similarly weird, although he writes in English. And it's a very also, it's like the images are just bizarre. I think it's something coming out of like um, that whole post-Soviet experience where they have a very uh, um, strange sense of humor <laughs> that emerges over and over and over again that I really love. Um, and so, yeah. And like, and I, I think the, uh, the, 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 like I said, I suggested justice because I think the translations there are the smoothest in English. Um, and the other two people I suggested as hidden gems are kind of people I know. So it's, Which it's is the like, main thing I told you not to do. Yeah, God I know. Damn it. Um, damn it, Derek. <laughs> God damn it. I know, I know. I don't know. They're not like my friends, but um, yeah. Oni Buchanan, who I had you read, it's a very avant-garde book, and I had you read the first one. Um, she was my uh, when I wrote my um, my book, um, Apocalyptics. Uh, the the first draft it was actually completed 15 years before I published it, and it's a very different book. And my advisor sent it to her to give me um, a critique, um, and then I got her book, What Animal. She's mainly famous, more famous for being a uh, classical pianist in the kind of like avant-garde classical tradition more than she is a poet, although she has three collections of poetry. 
And I think what animal is my favorite, but it's probably just my favorite because it's the first one I encountered. Okay. Yeah, I think that from the, from the, from the cover and the length, I thought this was going to be my favorite and it was not my favorite. <laughs> um, um, and yeah, but let's, uh, I think we should still give folks a taste for sure. Is there, you want to read see? one? No, no, I, 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 I feel like I'm just destroying everyone I read. So please. All right, let me find a good one for you. I can find it. I, I, I tried to put myself on the mute button when I just like coughed there a second ago. I don't know if that was successful or not, but. Yeah, um, I'll read you. Um, I'll read you a very short poem, actually, from this book. It's called Solstice. One day the moon will fly out of its orbit, a release, like a snapping, an amputation, a dead rock gone. The dead voices of lambs drowned out by the machinery rigged for their removal. I began to think about the ocean. I be I begged to think. Melodic apparitions rising out of the static cord. And what I love about what she does is uh, she tends to start off in the very concrete and go into the abstract, but by the abstract, she's mostly going into trying to mimic sound. Um, and so she starts off a lot of times with pictures of, you know, animals and goes into these crazy places extrapolating on sound or emotion in a way that almost fugues off of uh, how she begins. She's also highly elliptical. You have to read between the lines a lot. Um, yeah. I think some of her poetry actually isn't meant to be understood. I think it's more meant to be experienced, which is often the case with um, people who are primarily musicians. <laughs> okay. And um, you said that was, that was solstice? Is that in, that's in what animal? Yeah, it is in there somewhere. Um, okay. All right. I think it's towards the end. Um, and and I, the other thing is, which obviously probably people that uh, read poetry on the rig know, is I think, I feel like you, you need to, uh, you really need to uh, read the titles of her poems and take those into consideration before you, <laughs> otherwise you're gonna be totally lost. Uh, I'm thinking of the guinea pig and the green balloon, especially. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, cool. All right, well, uh, that's good. And then uh, the number one, number one gem, "Mini Thing" by Dan Raphael. Mm -hmm. I had I had more success with this. Um, yeah, Dan so Raphael is uh, a person I met after this book came out, so I read it and liked it first. Um, okay, um, that's fine. That that works. Yeah. Um, so I met him actually, well, I didn't meet him, meet him. He started sending me poems, um, because he, he read my book when he realized we were both published by the same press in New Orleans. Okay. Um, so he started sending my journal poetry later, but, uh, what, what did you like about this book? This is many thing by Dan Raphael from unlikely books. I liked the, um, I mean, I liked his, uh, kind of working class or his kind of just his um not working class even but just like his uh uh i don't want i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to you know where it has a little bit of bukowski vibe and that just the just different with different ones um 
let's see. Uh, I, I reviewed it before. Let me, I think I'll just, I'll, I'll butcher another one. And it's, okay. the first, and it's the first one and it's short and then let you uh, find yours. And then I, uh, yeah, I review, I have some little notes and things I want to say about it. So um, Rapture. I wondered why so many empty parking spaces, then looked up and saw the lid of the sky had been removed, thousands of bodies gushing upwards. Most of the homeless were gone. Most of the small, most of the small business owners were trying to find staff. I paid the meter as certainly the police were still here. I tried to call home, but a cloud of cell phones enforced silence. Maybe the pound shop with the used guitars and guns is open. We have inherited the earth. Not all of us are meek. So yeah, I mean, he's going to pull, he's going to kind of like pull from things that whatever, whether it's the Bible or whether it's different things that I'm more familiar with, or I don't know, you know what I mean? He's more of a, he's a, he's a dude, you know, yeah. whereas, whereas Oni is not, she's not a dude. <laughs> and so um, I have to, it takes me a little bit more time to get warmed up to her. Yeah. I'll, I'll read her wolf walks into McDonald's. It, it's a, it's somewhat similar. A wolf walks into McDonald's. No one moves. A black Camaro spilling fries peels out of the parking lot. The chase begins. A wolf walks into McDonald's. Into a McDonald's. The 410 cashier bolts for the back door. The wolf leaps the counter. In two strides, he, his jaw tears off her left thigh. A wolf walks into a McDonald's. No one says anything, assuming he's a service dog. A wolf walks into a McDonald's. The rent-a-cop. Having a late lunch, pulls his weapon and tells the wolf to freeze. The wolf jumps the counter, then out the drive-up window, his teeth grabbing the bag from the convertible driver's lap, two quarter panders and two large fries. A wolf walks into a McDonald's, steps to the counter, and sets down a baggie, in which is an order, 20 double cheeseburgers, no buns, no mustard, and a McDonald's gift card. Your order... 319, the cashier says. The wolf goes to wait with the other customers. No one tries to pet him. I mean, I love how um, Dan Raphael will often start with just an absurd absurd conceit or even a joke and just run with it until it is wrung out in a way that also still kind of has a a sort of poetic form. I, I think he's, I think, I think Dan's hilarious. Um, and I think he's he's good at um, really parroting American life. I until I published him, I didn't realize he was like significantly older than me. Um, so you see, you see the photo, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, it's 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 been interesting. Um, I I really like this book. Um, so I just yeah. wanted I wanted to spread the love around to something that's. And this book's a little bit harder to find. I was actually, Unlikely Books is distributed by Amazon, so it actually is easy to get in the UK. But, I, I, you know, that's an obscure press out of uh, out of um, Louisiana. And, you know, I know because my book's with them, and I'm like one of their one of their better sellers, and we're doing good to sell 300 books. So, um, you know. It's, it's a couple of lines that it says uh, <laughs> something about... Uh, when I do an upright somersault crossing four lanes, the pigeons turn into gift cards. <laughs> just, just like, I don't know, there's little bits like that. And then uh, obviously all Bajra goes is um, worried that the sun will fade. This is from a totally different poem. Worried that the sun will fade 
their ankles and feet. I think the rain's, I think rain's a conspiracy to keep people at home, which, <laughs> which I don't know. It just, I, it hits, like, it, this was written before COVID, but it hits a nerve yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. It hits a nerve now. And also, <laughs> if I, I mean, uh, it, all it takes is a strong breeze to convince me that someone's a conspiracy. So I, I'm, 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 with, I'm with them on the rain. Um, and then um, little, just little bits. Um, I'm dyslexic about danger and always run toward it. A Buddhist physicist, drinker of malt liquor and barrel-aged microbrews. Fo- following, following to the lighthouse with Dune Messiah, <laughs> which I'm assuming that that's a follow-up to the a Dune book. Yeah, it's it's like a later Dune book. It's one of the ones that isn't really considered that good. Um, And yeah, I mean, that's also something I would do. Like, if you you follow my Goodreads, my Goodreads enough to know that like my reading patterns are like that. It's like classics and super obscure stuff, and then like Derek's reading a Marvel comic out of nowhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, I mean they they always they always look they always look super interesting to me. I'm always. Um, but then, yeah, there's uh, another poem. I won't read it, but if if Jimi Hendrix hadn't died so young, and then he has another poem where he, I, I don't know if he wrote it on the day that Prince died, or um, mm-hmm. no, but so there's there's just lots. There's lots. He's got he's got you know. I like it's a I like good his, collection. I like his style. I like his references. I'll, I'll definitely finish. I've read half of it, and I'll, fin- I'll look forward to finishing the rest of it. Uh, so cool. So, so that was fun. We did it. We did we did poetry. We we uh, cleared the a pretty high bar i think and then and then i'll let you go here pretty soon but we'll just going to talk about what you gave me a you, you i gave you one i gave you one good movie one favorite movie um i mean it could give you four but they would all that would have been a whole podcast i gave you one of the overrated movies and then my yeah. most recent hidden gem um which will probably actually be slightly surprising um so so yeah, so, so your, you said your your favorite was Stalker. Yeah, so Stalker. Said, uh, I, I, that didn't exactly blindside me coming from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I've only done like five podcasts on Tarkovsky. <laughs> um, and uh, and then overrated was The Dark Knight, which yeah. I would totally agree with you. But I mean, it still might. It's pretty probably pretty high up there as far as superhero movies go, isn't it? Well, I mean, it, it's interesting because like. I think it's overrated if you if you. I, I it. hated it. I hated it when I got out of it, and everybody else loved it. But right, well, I mean, it, it, it it's uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, I remember trying to parse the politics even at the time. So I'm like, okay, so uh, neoconservatism is bad, but good? Question mark. Also, chaos is bad, but also this is the most planned motherfucker it's ever existed on the planet. By that, I mean the Joker. Um, question mark. Um, I think what I would say about Christopher Nolan movies in general is I think they aim to be profound and they're often highly confused and they actually tend to have a very short self, uh, shelf life um, before there's a backlash against them. But for some reason, The Dark Knight is still remembered pretty fondly. I think because a lot of people probably haven't watched it. But I also, I walked into it and I, I remember thinking, oh, that Heath Ledger performance is amazing. That movie makes no sense. Like, that yeah, was... I think, 
think I would enjoy it. I think I would enjoy it if I rewatched it, but I don't even know if I, I wasn't even going in with that much of expectations, but I, I didn't. I well, every, yeah, maybe, I, I was, maybe I was just trying to be a contrarian or something like that, but, but now, I mean, like, I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't watched that much. Well, I think the last one I watched was the first Captain America movie. And just, and that was, uh, that was 2011 really, or something. I mean, it was like a board and it was some bros and like, you know, let's go to the theater. And I was like, no, let's not do this guys, guys, come on, come on guys. Don't, do, but I, you know, whatever. 37 Marvel movies later. Um, and it was, yeah. And it was, and it, and it was soul crushing. Um, so I, I can, so I call that movie a montage of montages, but yes, by contrast, or even by contrast with the grim, dark later DC movies, right? Um, yeah, it seems really good. My, my the reason why I call it overrated, though, is I think a lot of people thought of like, oh, it's so amazing for a comic book movie, and I'm like, it's it's a comic book movie. It's confused, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah, every comic book movie I've ever sure. watched, and it's just That's made a- by a competent director as opposed to an incompetent one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Well, we get yeah, Christopher Nolan. That's that's something else we get. We talk about Tenet, but we're not going to. We can talk about other stuff, but I think it's more important too. So, so this, oh, man, this Hagasusa, which in <laughs> Germanic starts off starts off nice, starts off good, and mm-hmm. it it goes places. <laughs> Why do you like this movie, Derek? <laughs> um, if you ask my partner, she would say I have a secret hankering for all things weird. Fokari and secretly pagan. Um, what, 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 are, what are some other good um, folkhorry pagan? I mean, I, I mean, I love the Ricker Man. I love um, all the well, Ben Wheatley movies. Um, okay, so I, you know, I haven't. I don't think I've. Wa- I haven't watched any of his um, earlier stuff. I think I've only watched that whatever. Which one? Uh, the J. Did you do the JG Ballard? The oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I would actually, which is a pretty good movie, but I would actually yeah. watch. Uh, a field in England. Um, yeah, I need that. That's the one. I, I need. I need. To, I need to watch that. Okay, so the field in England, and mm-hmm. sorry. Then what else? You the saying? Wicker Man, the original. Well, is not. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. 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 Blood on that. Satan Claw. Blood on Satan Claw. Um, the ritual. I, I, re, uh, I re, rewatched Wicker Man recently with uh, the wife and to show it to her, and that was fun. That was a good time. It's interesting. Blood, Blood on Satan Claw. I think I just. I think I just added that to my letter block box. And then, yeah. and then what's the other one? The ritual cancer is another. It's a more recent okay. one, um, okay. but I um, love Hagazusa. Yeah, yeah, back to that. I love Hagazusa because it's if you, if you think it's basically like the German answer to the witch, and if you know like old or like old German, that's what that word means. But man, is it crazier! Um, and um, you are left with the with the with the, the constant question in some of these more isolationist um, uh, folk horror movies, is the protagonist insane? <laughs> um, and can we trust what we're seeing? Um, and also, um, I think it just, it's so, it's, it's also a movie where nobody ends up looking good. Like there's not, you don't have a clear, like you don't really have a clear protagonist and antagonist ultimately. Um, so I think it's pretty genius in that way. Um, I think also it messes with you towards the end, just how much sensory distortion comes into it. Um, not like sensory distortion in like a 
in a in a bad way, in a gonna no. make you have a have a whatever. No, it's not gonna make you have a seizure, but yeah. But it is gonna make you like wonder, like, wait, what? Like, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, which it did, which it did, and I had to read about it. Um, and we don't do. I, I try not to do spoilers because I think if it's if it's something. I mean, I, I don't know how near and dear this one is to. I guess if it's not near and dear to you, then you go into spoilers. But, um, but if you think it's if you think it's a nice work of art, then yeah, I, I love it. it. Should experience, yeah, should experience it. Um, and native. So, what did you so make it's a, H H A G-A-Z-U-S-S-A from 2017. Lucas Feigenfeld or, mm-hmm. or something like that. In the 15th century, a young goat herd living alone in a mountain hut feels a dark presence in the woods. Um, I was barely I was about like, that. You know, she's growing up with her mom and then her mom uh, dies and um, I thought it was beautiful. It's it's up in the mountains. It's absolutely gorgeous. I liked the part with the priest, and mm. I, I I didn't think I thought I thought maybe oh god they're gonna go down the kind of cliche thing where this priest is gonna rape her. He's gonna do something bad. You know what I mean? Like we're oh we're gonna yeah the, the church is not the person who's the evil in this movie. <laughs> yeah yeah. So that so that I have to say that was refreshing, and it was also you know he he um all those like skulls and so some dramatic and and um Mm. people thought was put into how things looked and then um i guess yeah and then i don't know there was a little bit of tension between her and the normal people down in the town and why aren't you living there and i kind of i for some reason i want her like moving to the town and make friends with the people in the town and have happily ever after but that's not what happens that's not what happens at all <laughs> but, that, but, but, but i guess also it was refreshing as it wasn't like there was tons of antagonism no like shit i guess there was there was some definite antagonism but but there's a there's there's a delir- there there is a uh, but not going into spoilers there's a there is a trigger to the antagonism um that is subtle um what is that trigger? Uh, the, the 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 female friend from the village who is nicer in the beginning notices the skull in the corner. Right. Okay. Okay. And that's and that's when there's a turning point in the. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Now, now even I sense. can't tell you what to make. Like I don't want to spoil the end, but even I will just say, even I don't really know what happens in the last so, five minutes. Sure. Like, but so how how did you find how did you find out about this movie? Um, I've been, uh, I've been, fo- I, I'm one, I'm in the German film in general. Like I, I, I lived in Germany in my, in my early twenties for a very brief period of time for about nine months. And two, um, as, as I was telling you, I'm in the full car and I kind of go through the, uh, I go through shutter and, and, and Netflix and whatever, and try to find the stuff that is, that is highly rated by people who watch it, but I haven't read that much about and mm-hmm. i saw this movie um it just kind of came up on on a, a sh- like on shutter and i was like what the hell is that like mm-hmm. um so then i, I watched think, I think, it and then i watched it again so right and i think but because I, I guess what i'm saying is that uh once i went to like look for it to be explained and different blogs and stuff it seemed like there was it was out a lot of see i, I could be wrong but it seemed like I, there was a lot of blogs that had talked yeah about so apparently it, it did pretty well on the on the um on like the film on like the film um the film what do you call the things whatever can is like the film festival, festival, festival circuit. circuit yeah okay. but it didn't 
it it skipped release. It went straight from film festival circuit to about a year later um, streaming, which I think is okay. more and more the model for a lot of these sure, sure. Of, you know, not incredibly high budget, um, borderline art house, borderline horror movies. Um, and so, yeah, um, I, like you, once I watched it, I'm like, I need to learn more about this film. I found that there's tons of people writing about it. Um, but it, again, like it didn't seem like it was super popular beyond the people, like it's, it's like the velvet underground kind of horror movie where like the people who know about it, love it or they hate it. But most people don't know either way. Like they've just never encountered it at all. Um, so the, the Velvet Underground when they were a, a plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when they were yeah. actually around, not yeah, not yeah. twenty years yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of horror movies that that's true for that I think are really good. Um, but most of them are kind of famous now. And I thought like this still is not like it's still not known. You know, when I when I drop references to this movie in casual conversation, unlike say anything by Dave Eggers or um or Ari Aster or any of that stuff, which is you know a very similar genre and concern, people know that. And then I mentioned Hagazuza and they're like, What? I'm like, yeah. Oh, yeah, go watch it. It's it's you know, you can find it on Shutter, it's cheap, you know. <laughs> right, cool. Oh. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, that's exactly that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to do that. <laughs> GD Hidden Gems, so uh, cool. Um, well, this was awesome, and uh, if for some reason it didn't record, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> it's recording. It's recording. Okay, good. Good. Yeah, we had some, some technical mix-ups, so we're actually recording on your... All right. Um, um, and then, yeah, I think, I, think we're, I think we're way over time, but um, is there any... So you said this... this I, I listened to it a little bit, but this Sunlux CD... Yeah. It is. It's like three different versions of it. They're all released in the same year. There's two. Was it? What's the name of the album? It's Watermark or something. Yeah, like it's that. Watermark, and there's there's a bunch of different versions. It's, it reminds me of like maybe like a Framing Lips, uh, Zacharica, or what was that album that you that was four albums that were meant to be played at once at the same time. It's not that crazy, but there's 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 a bunch of alternate versions of this album. I think Sunlocks is um, is kind of. It's weirdly, it's it's an oddly beautiful sort of album. If you're into, I think you could be into everything from kind of like pop to post rock and enjoy it. Um, so yeah, you know. it seemed accessible, uh, more accessible than the way we were talking about it. But you're saying it doesn't matter whether you listen to Tomorrow's One or Tomorrow's Two, or they, no, the I, I think you listen to any of them. They're different, but I, I mean, okay. I would like, I would, I would listen, I would listen to all of them. Okay, um, all right. Uh, what else would I suggest people listen to? You know, um, I, I do listen to a hell of a lot of music. Um, Nick Cave has, has an orchestral album that I think is pretty good. Um, so, um, that just came out with, uh, what's his face? I have to look on my Spotify. Hold on. Um, Warren Ellis, uh, not Warren Ellis. Maybe it is Warren Ellis. Um, let's see. Let's go to my most recent Spotify that I think people might be interested in. Um, let's see what it's called carnage. Okay. Um, I think that's not, I, th- I just, I think that's good to keep it, keep it potent. If these are your top. Yeah. It is that, it's, that, it's that Warren Ellis. Yeah, it's, it, it's Warren Ellis and Nick cave. It's carnage. It, it is a lot like a grinder man album. If you know that period of Nick cave, uh, Nick cave's work. 
and um, but it's but it's orchestral, not rock. Okay. Um, so I would I think, check that out. But this is also what I, this is also the whole thing of what I want to do is it sounds uh, it sounds very horrible, but to um, to 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 download or extract you know like the whole person not the whole person but you know what I mean like I don't know I think I think there's something I think there's something interesting to be like. Uh, of knowing knowing where people touch down in different areas and um i don't know if it's, it's, yeah, i get tired of talking about the same marxist shit all the time so i appreciate it yeah this i yeah no this, i i this is this, if i i this came off as gangbusters for me so that's exactly exactly what i wanted so um so that's great um uh yeah, I, I I I I got other things that I wanted to talk to you, ask you about, but um, I think we I think we did really good. So All I don't right. want to pu- I don't want to push it. Thanks a lot, dude.